Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha. Again, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors. So if you're uh, visiting for the first time, as Spence said, welcome to you especially. Glad you guys are here with us today, worshiping with us. And uh, as we're about to do here, learn with us and hear from God uh, collectively and corporately as a, as a community from, uh, from the Bible. So um, Happy New Year as well. Uh, good to be back. We, we are usually this time of year in between sermon series, and so uh, this year is no exception. We finished a series in Galatians last fall, did some Christmassy type things, and now we're in pastor's choice mode basically for a little bit of time until the end of the month. We st- we'll start something new, probably an Old Testament book. We're looking at some things, and we will uh, announce that more here in the coming, uh, coming weeks. But uh, for a few weeks, we'll be doing some visioning things. But today what I want to do is uh, preach from James chapter 2, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that'd be great, but as usual, this will be on screen as well. Uh, but James chapter 2, 14 to 26, and this idea of active faith will be uh, in focus today. And I'm doing this because uh, really, in terms of where we've been as a church for really three, four months in the book of Galatians, uh, this is a, a passage that complements it well. It, it seems like it's held in tension, and it is. You'll, you'll feel that in a minute if you don't know what I'm talking about. But a lot of you have asked about this too. So we, we've been in a book that's been heavy on grace, and some of you have just flat out asked me, or Spence, or the, or the elders, or just others written on your cards, or whatever it's been. You've asked about this passage because uh, you know it, you've read it, uh, and it seems to, to contradict. And so, um, so Galatians, uh, to remind you or to let you know for the first time if you're new to the Bible, is another book in the New, the new Testament that's uh, been pounding home this idea that to be saved, to be reconciled with God, is something that's done by grace, meaning that, that God gives it as a gift. It's undeserved merit. It's been shown to us by, by his love and given to us by his love. It's, it's been uh, through Christ's work, his son's work on the cross for us that we're saved. Not at all by our works. And so in Galatians and in a lot of other places, not just in the New Testament, but the Old as well, you see faith and law or grace and works held in tension and, and contrasted. And, and so Paul actually, the, the, there's a false teaching that was kind of, kind of rising up in the churches of Galatia in the first century that Paul's writing to in the book of Galatians that says kind of the opposite of that, that Jesus saves you, but your works keep you saved. That was the false teaching. Jesus gets you in, but you stay in by your moral effort. And Paul just dismantles that idea in, in about you know, four or five chapters, and really six chapters, but the first four or five chapters dismantles that idea from every angle imaginable. But then we come across passages like today's passage, and it seems to contradict Paul a little bit, where works are kind of brought back in, and works are talked about as this valuable, important part of what it means to be a Christian, uh, even to the point of maybe we're not even saved if we're not demonstrating our faith or working out our salvation, uh, to borrow from Philippians, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, uh, and also in the way that James talks about in his epistle or letter. So it's a great passage, it's a really tough passage, but it's a great one, and again, it, it fits kind of in, in an addendum type way to Galatians, but also will serve as kind of a big questions type sermon to those of you who have asked about this these, uh, these past few months, and even aside from both those things, it's just a great passage of scripture that I think encourages us greatly in what the gospel is uh, and what it isn't, but also it, it just pokes and prods and, and really calls us to repentance and calls us to really watch our lives closely and our doctrine. That's something Paul says elsewhere in a different book, and we've been saying that throughout Galatians because it fits so well. It does here too. Watch your lives, Christians, and your doctrine, so what you believe about the gospel, what you believe about the Bible, watch that all really closely. Put it under a microscope. Who are we in Christ? What did he do for us on the cross? Who is God? What is this grace thing all about? 
What is sin? How do we define that? How can we be warring against it with the grace he provides? But watch our doctrines too so that we're not believing false things about God or false things about what it means to be saved. These are very important things. They're not optional. You know, that, yes, it's, it's, you know, given over to the professional Christians who are pastors or something, uh, so to speak, to really know doctrine well, but the rest of us just kind of receive. This is written to all of us. We're all in Christ equally. We're all given the same Bible. We're all spoken to in the same way uh, by God in a gospel, Jesus-y way, ultimately. And so it's given over to all of us to look at our lives and, and our doctrine closely. And, and this passage will, will I think, help us in, in that endeavor. So let's read from James 2. If you're not aware of this tension I've been talking about between Paul and James and Galatians and the book of James and all of that, you'll, you'll be, I'm going to get you up to speed here in just a second. Let's read all of James 2 to begin, and we'll go back and kind of frame the interpretational tension and issue after that. So uh, you'll see what, what we're talking about here. So James 2, verse 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Do you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works? And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now on the heels of Galatians, we've started to beat our heads against the wall. Now at this point, right? Like, what's going on? And so let me just frame the issue here a little bit. Again, for those of you that are, aren't as, as privy to this, this issue and expose you, maybe some of you for the first time, the tension that exists between Paul and James and Galatians, the idea of grace alone and what James is, is saying here. So in Galatians 2.16, for example, uh, as we saw a few weeks ago, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Then in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's from God. It's a gift of God not a result of our moral efforts or our works or anything that we do so that none may boast. And so then we're, we read stuff like this and we, we kind of take that in. It's good news for the soul. But right when we think we've got this grace thing figured out, then James swoops in out of nowhere and says in verse 17, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, right? Perfectly clear. How could it not be more clear? I don't understand. Uh, it's like, thanks, James, you know, super helpful here and again, we, 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 uh, we beat our heads against, against the wall. But welcome to biblical interpretation. Here we go. Uh, this, is, this is one of those times, though, where I think it's, it's okay to acknowledge the difficulty. And there, this will not always be the case, but a lot of times we do, uh, when we try to interpret tensions, uh, it's just hard. 
and, and we beat our heads against the wall in frustration. And if you uh, are doing that now figuratively or later, literally, uh, you're in good company. But a couple things, though, about this before we get into James 2. One, this tension right off the bat here is not irresolvable. There, there is a difference between a theological contradiction and a theological tension, and this is the latter. It's a tension, but not a contradiction. We'll talk more about that in a second. That's the first thing. The second thing here is things like this, when we come across issues like this in the Bible, th this teaches us the importance of, and it leads us to the importance of, biblical theology. In other words, using the rest of the Bible to interpret the more difficult parts. Or at least understanding that the Bible is not a series of unrelated proverbs, but a story about Jesus renewing the world that has bearing on our lives. And how we go about understanding that bearing is complicated and nuanced and has many facets to it, but again, those facets never contradict, even if they are held in tension like uh, these uh, series of statements are. So we need to ask a bunch of questions here. I'll just kind of pose some questions and then we'll uh, sort of uh, jump off of, of the latter one, but they're all kind of saying the same thing. Uh, one of the questions is, well, how is James's teaching here compatible with, with Paul's or the theology of a book like Galatians or Ephesians? How does it jive with uh, this idea of uh, faith and works needing to be uh, cooperating uh, for it to be genuine? The Bible says, by grace we've been saved, not by works, yet faith without works is dead. How do those things go, go together? But notice here, uh, initially, James doesn't say, by works we have been saved, period. He never says that. That would be a contradiction with other parts of the Bible. But simply he says here, faith without works is lifeless, limp, and we should question its authenticity. So more questions this brings up then, well, so how is this compatible with the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and that that alone reconciles God and sinful people? How does this reconcile that? And the many places in the Bible that, that hold grace and works and faith and law and spirit and flesh and all those things at odds, not in kind of healthy, balanced tension. And just what is James even saying here? It's one of those passages where I think if you've had a peripheral reading of James before, or even taught it before, read a little bit about it, um, and I'm guilty of this too, but it's easy to think that we know what he's talking about when we don't really know what he's talking about. We don't really understand the examples he's using as much, and we see works, and we think we know what that means, and, and the way he uses it, though, is kind of nuanced and different, and so we'll, we'll talk about that. But that's one of the questions. What is James actually saying here? What type of faith is lifeless? Or, or the inverse here, what does genuine faith look like in the Christian life? And that, I think, is what, what is at the heart of James here, why he's writing this general letter. We call it a general epistle or general letter to the general church rather than like one of Paul's letters that was written to a specific city or a church or a person. Uh, in this case, it's a general letter. This is what's at his heart, though, is he's probably seeing lifeless or hearing about lifeless faith or limp faith. And he's writing to address that. He said it's actually not genuine faith. It's this idea of works that needs to kind of... Uh, come in. So when, when I say that, though, one, one disclaimer before we get into what James 2 is saying is that when you hear genuine faith, as it, as it says here, genuine faith, don't think perfect faith. Genuine faith and perfect faith are not the same thing. No one has perfect faith. You know, so breathe a sigh of relief. This is not about perfect, pristine, clean, 
just amazing faith that just, you know, uh, always turns God head, God's head in amazement or something like that. That's not, there will be different levels of faith that you'll have, kind of in, you know, relative to your brothers and sisters in the faith, and that's great. Let's celebrate, though, whatever faith we have, because it's a gift. It doesn't come from here. Faith is given, it's, gift, it's a gift, and so we can pray for it. There's a, there's a guy, and one of the great prayers of the New Testament in Mark chapter 8, it's a centurion, this Gentile guy, knows very little about the, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament and all this, but Jesus comes on the scene and he kind of gets a sense for who he is and, and his power, his authority, and the newness that he brings into the world and that he's, that he's good. And, and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's a great prayer. You should pray that prayer. I pray that prayer. We, should, we don't pray that prayer as a church. Pray that for each other. We believe, but help, help our unbelief. Jesus, because uh, our faith is far from perfect. And the good news is we're not saved by perfect faith. We're saved by a little bit of faith in the right direction. A mustard seed, in fact, as Jesus says, of faith. A little bit. Not a planet-sized bit of faith. Mustard seed. Just got to be in the right direction. It's got to be in Jesus Christ, in what he's done for us. Uh, and as long as it's faced that way and pointed that way, it is, it is sufficient. So but with that said, there is such a thing into you know, honor James 2 argument here is there is such a thing as genuine faith and, and ingenuine or non-genuine faith. We have to acknowledge that. And so if that's the case and we're Christians or non-Christians too asking what it means to be a Christian, but if we're Christians especially, the warning here is know the difference. Know the difference. What kind of faith do we have? What is genuine? What does it look like in a Christian Christian life? There's a lot to say about that and James is not being holistic, comprehensive in his answer here, but he is covering a lot of good, a lot of good bases. And so, as we look at that last question then, what does genuine faith look like in the Christian life? Uh, there's two things, broadly speaking, I think he says. He gives, a, he gives a general answer, it's kind of a broad brush answer, and then a more specific one. And so that's one of how I frame today is the general and then the specific, and we'll get to the specifics of those things here in just, just a second. So, but first, the, the general in the first part of James 2, or today's passage, I mean, verses 14 to 17 cover uh, this general base um, well. And that is actual belief that this whole Christianity thing is real, which then leads to love. So in other words, Jesus really lived, really died, and really resurrected himself so that he might enter into our catastrophic sinful messes, fight our enemies for us, and as a human, be the first of many to themselves wake up from death. It means he lives with us now. His love has taken up residence in our hearts, and through his church, he's beginning to renew all things. And, and so all of this, that this is the gospel, and it's true and historical. It's real. And so part of what we saw in our Galatians series last fall, and this is something from chapter 6, if you want to go back and look at this, I encourage you to. In chapter 6, there's a warning that God can't be mocked. He can't be tricked. His grace can't be taken advantage of. Either it's real and we believe it and it changes us, or none of that is true. We can't kind of cherry pick one of those three things and just have that piece to it. Either it's real, we believe it, and it changes us, or none of that is true. Or think about it this way. The, the idea of forgiveness is different from the experience of forgiveness. The idea of God forgiving us, just the concept, is good, but it's not great. 
the, if the idea is there alone and hasn't like taken root in our hearts and like just really borne fruit and changed us, that's, that's the greater thing. So the good thing is knowing, the greater thing is experiencing and knowing it's personal. Jonathan Edwards, one of the, the Puritans, uh, says this about this really this issue. It's not a commentary on James, but it's the same, same idea. He says there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness, right? There's a difference. Knowing that, yes, yeah, someone told me it's sweet, I know this honeybee farmer. Is that what you call them? Whatever they're called. Uh, and I, he's, and they, they've tasted honey, and they, they're, they're experts at it. They cook with it. You know, they've told, I've read a book on it. I've seen pictures. I know it's sweet, but you just know it's sweet. That's different than actually tasting the honey, right? Ingesting it, spreading it across a biscuit, and, and taking a big bite of that. Like, that, that's a different experience. They're both good, but the latter is great. And as you apply this to the Christianity, the, the former is maybe the doorstep or the threshold of the faith for all of us, but until we cross over that and take the honey and ingest it and know that, and, or as uh, Spence read earlier from Psalm 34, taste it, this is the invitation the Bible gives, in the spirit of this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just know, but, but taste, taste and see. So then the question is, do we understand the idea that God forgives sinners? Or do we also believe that he has forgiven me, a sinner? And maybe it's just the former for some of you. And that's okay. I mean, to, to know that is am- it's amazing. We start there, but we move to this place of tasting the honey and knowing that actually it's not just this idea that God is good and he's forgiving, but he's actually forgiving me. It's a miracle I'm saved. That's a tasting thing. And so we, we can't then intellectually ascribe to some aspect of what the gospel is, but not repent or turn from our old way of living or keep it at arm's distance personally. We, we just can't do that. It's not what the, what the Bible invites, what Jesus invites, what God wants. And, and we can't take something that has bearing or claims to have bearing on our lives and say, I understand it, but I'll keep it at bay and not allow it to have bearing on my life. There's a disconnect there. And James 2's argument's built off of that misperceived uh, disconnect. So when he says, then to go back to James 2, when he says things like, you believe that God is one, you do well. But then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Love that inclusion. But he's saying, when he says that, the Christian faith is not simply believing God exists. Many people believe, most people actually believe globally and have for all of history that God exists, but it doesn't make them a Christian. Even here he says demons believe it. So what? It, so it has to be more. What makes us different than the demons? A couple of things. One, Jesus didn't become a fallen angel to save fallen angels. He became a human being to save humans. And that should instantly kind of raise the bar of our self-worth before God. Isn't that incredible? That God became just like us to save us, but chose not to become like other things to save them. It, it's shocking maybe surprising, but tons of love and intentionality that God has there to become like, to take on the thing that he was saving. So he didn't become a rock to save rocks or a demon to become demons. He became a human, a sinful, not a sinful human being, but in flesh, he took on our flesh and in a sense on the cross took on our sins. He bore them. And in that sense, like 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, he wasn't a sinner, but he became sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become righteous or the, the righteousness of, of God. 
on the one level, Jesus didn't become a fallen angel. This is what makes this different. This is why we go past James 2.19. This is not like Christianity in a nutshell. He's trying to argue that for that here. That's one. But two, we're different in that we just don't intellectually ascribe to God's existence. We rather place our wholesale trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're shaped and made new by that faith. And our gratefulness, in turn, looks like good works to others especially to Jesus' people, his church. We see that in earlier in chapter 2 when he uses the phrase brother or sister. If a brother or sister is in need, and that, that's a, um, this has been a huge, if you've been here for the past even four to six weeks, you, you've heard this from multiple people, multiple authors in the Bible, um, amongst different kinds of arguments that there's, there is a, a critical importance to the Christian, for the Christian, to love specifically other Christians. To love all, for sure, but to have a kind of a, spe- a specificity to our love that focuses on God's people. Brothers and sisters means Christians. Brothers and sisters does not mean a random neighbor. It doesn't mean care for the global poor. It means knowing, it means family, spiritual family, knowing who are your brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, or when the Bible uses the phrase one another, letters are written to Christians, New Testament letters are written to Christians, so when it says one another, it says love or show generosity to or show hospitality to one another in, in the faith. Certainly amongst calls to go beyond that as well, for sure, but the one another's, the brothers and sisters are specific calls to love other Christians. So, James 2 then is saying, when he talks about this example of how important it is to sacrificially love and give to other Christians, he's saying a true faith in Jesus Christ believes in his grace and rests in that, is moved by it, but then reciprocates it kind of back to Jesus by way of his people. Matthew 25, we've looked at this also recently, but Jesus says, and makes this link, this is some of Jesus Christ's words himself, he says, when, when you fed one of my brothers other Christians, when you, when you clothed one of my brothers, you fed and you clothed me. Not a natural way to think maybe for, for us as Christians, but he, he's making a link between himself and Christians. He's saying, I'm so much in, I live so much in Christians that when you love them, you actually love me. So way to respond to God's love, first shown to us, is, is to worship, is to be thankful, is, is to pray, but a real tangible way is to love really him by way of his people to, to love, or to use a different metaphor, not just the family one or the, the child one, but to love his bride. Because Jesus is like a bridegroom and the church is like his, his bride. So, so there, th- this is a really important thing to, to work hard at linking in your mind. It's not natural. It's not natural for me. Maybe it's natural for you and that's great. If it is, thank God for that because you are the exception, not the rule. Uh, but, but to work hard at making this link between gratefulness for Jesus' love and doing good towards his people. That they're inextricably linked in the Bible. We can easily, in our minds, pull those apart and say, well, but I can respond to Jesus' love myself, can't I? And just not be involved in a church or not care about God's people that much? Can, can I do, can, like, I mean, logically, can't I do that? And the Bible's saying you can't. You actually can't. Because where is Jesus now? The, the, the most physical way to get a glimpse of Christ now is in another Christian because he lives in them. And especially 
more than an individual Christian, like a group of Christians. Loving each other, serving one another, embodying and speaking the gospel to each other, and being there to help one another when we're in trouble. That, that is the, the most, fit, and, and a, maybe a loving marriage, a husband towards a wife and a wife towards a husband, moving towards each other. These are the most physical like, things we get now, communion. There are other signs, but one of the biggest ways is to look at a Christian and, and, to, and to see that. So again, well, we can separate those, the Bible doesn't. 1 John 4.20, gets it's a little bit more graphically or um, just, I guess, harder. And it says, if anyone says, if any Christian says, I love God and hates his brother or another Christian of the church, he's a liar. A faith, then, this is what James 2 is starting to say, a faith without this kind of work. So we're defining what works are here. When James talks about what does it mean to have a faith lumped up with works, part of it is it's a church love. It's a familial, spiritual familial type love that's sacrificial and just deep and genuine and, and authentic. A faith without, though, this kind of work is dead because lovelessness towards other Christians is a sign of the lack of appreciation for the love of Jesus Christ or the gospel because, again, he is so much in his people. So, so again, works here to further define simply means a spirit-prompted ability to love other people as we bask in the grace of how Jesus has loved us. So as we taste the honey, not just know about the honey, but taste the honey and experience that, it's a spirit-prompted ability just to like pay that forward and to love others because we think about ourselves less and we want to show off the love we've been shown to other people. And that is not inconsistent with the idea of grace over works. So that's the general uh, piece to this. The second is related, but it's a little bit more specific. And that is, so again, the question is, what does genuine faith look like? It it looks like an active, non-people-pleasing faith, particularly in the resurrection. And I'm going to broad brush this. This is, I mean, there's a lot of nuance here and detail. We just don't have time for today, but we'll uh, we'll at least give the 30,000-foot view. One of the things you'll, you'll notice when you look at example, the, the examples of faith, and maybe you guys noticed this when you read this, and to go back to what I was saying about, you know, we think we know what, what works mean, or, you know, when, when he says works are a big deal, we think we know of it, and we might. But when you look at the examples of the faith, of faith and works working together that James gives, one of the things you notice is they're not obvious examples of straightforward morality or, like, commandment-keeping. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Rather, what he says is, look at these examples of people with active faith. Rahab, who feared God and protected two Israelite spies from capture. It's an odd story to, to reference, but he does. And Abraham, who offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Those are the two works. He's saying, this, these are the works lumped up with faith that I'm referencing to kind of push my argument, and I'm saying, church, uh, see the principle in this. See the active faith. But those are the works, not commandment keepers. This would be a great you know, chance to look back and look at someone who's keeping one of the Ten Commandments really well and say, hey, here, do this. This is what I mean by works. But he doesn't. There's no law in these stories. Just active 
faith that leads to risk-taking, that leads to love, that leads to unwavering trust in a God who is stronger than death. That is the works he's referring to. So it's huge. The fact that James 2 is not here at the end of the Bible say, hey, surprise, you know, it turns out we are saved by our works after all and a bunch of law-keeping, even though the rest of the New Testament says the opposite. It's not saying that. Instead, look to these two people as examples of active faith. So in Abraham's case, it says he offered his son Isaac up on the altar when God tested him. So if you don't know the story, he doesn't actually kill him uh, because an angel of the Lord stays his hand at the last minute and a ram is substituted for Isaac, his son, but but he's tested, and Abraham was obedient. So what does this teach us? Where's, where's the works in, in that story? Hebrews 11 is helpful here. We'll look at Hebrews twice because Rahab's mentioned here as well, but in Hebrews 11, all these different people are mentioned as examples of faith, which is interesting but also complicated because the same story is mentioned in Hebrews, uh, the same story with Abraham and, and Rahab, but they're both mentioned as, as works of faith not works. You know, so author Hebrews says, these are demonstrations of faith. James is saying, oh no, they're demonstrations of works. Great, thanks. I just want to make it more complicated for you before we move on. So, so there you go. Uh, but anyway, but with that said, let's, let's read what he says. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, who was in the act of offering up his only son, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This, this is an amazing commentary on the story in Genesis, which is in Genesis 22. If you want to read more about it, I encourage you to do that. We don't have time today to, to unpack it more. But what he's saying in commentary is saying that was an act of faith, and Abraham was actually trusting that after he killed his son, like God told him to, God would mend his actual physical body and he would start to breathe again what he's saying. This is why he, he did it. This is why he was obedient. He knew that God was stronger than death, and he was the God of the resurrection. That's what this is saying. Figuratively speaking, he did see a resurrection. So it's not just a vague notion of faith. It's a specific faith in the fact that God raises the dead. So Hebrews says that's a robust faith. James says that's a faith that looks like a type of work. He so much believed that his son's body would be put back together, even after he killed him, even though he didn't. But he so much believed that, that he was willing and obedient and trusting in the goodness of God, but also the power of God to raise his son Isaac from the dead. So Abraham's works then were based on an active, meaty, substantive faith in God who is stronger than death itself. His faith in a resurrection led him to move and act and risk and not fear death, even the death of his son. So one of the works here is an example. One of the works is not fearing death. Do we not fear death? That's a work that accompanies genuine faith. But that's the work that James is referring to here. And also with Rahab, a little bit different, but also quite similar. In Rahab's case, again, Hebrews 11 um, comments on this theologically, the same story, and says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish 
with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Again, crystal clear, right? What is he talking about? Well, it's a weird story, but he's saying by faith. James says that's by works, but Hebrews says it's by faith here as well. The two work together, as, as James says, and they're almost interchangeable in some way as we understand it to be genuine faith, not a work that saves us, justifies us before God, but an expression of, of genuine faith. So her work then, and this, this story is in Joshua 2, if you guys want to read about her more, I encourage you to do that in context, but her faith, to summarize a little bit of it, or her works, however you want to see it, believed that the God of Israel was the one true God who was not partial. She wasn't a Jew. So she believed that the, the one God of Israel was loving and not partial, that there was a place for her at the table of God. She believed that. And that he was a God worth dying for. Because the penalty for her treason or betrayal to her home country would have certainly been death, which, again, may, may be a nod to the fact that she had faith in a bodily resurrection. And her faith was active in that way, aligning with the work of showing kindness to God's people, even at the expense of being hated by others for it, acting on her true allegiance to God and not primarily to her country and not primarily to her family. So how does this translate to us then? That's the big question, because uh, this is, I probably don't have enough to say this, but to be clear, the point here, James is not saying to work out your faith now, you have to sacri- sacrifice your kids, and you have to go home and work really hard at hiding Jewish spies. You know, that'd be kind of oddly specific and weird. It's not saying that. Uh, it's saying there's principle here of an active faith. Just so nor is it trying really hard to be good, as if you could. I think one of the reasons why one of the examples of people being really good law keepers that James pulls from in the Old Testament is they don't really exist. Maybe there aren't that many people who are good at keeping the laws. Surprise, right? Shouldn't be what the Bible says. But we do have people who are good at faith. Really bad people who trust in God. That's the examples we have we need to follow. That looks like works. And so how does this translate to us? How do we allow James 2 to, to communicate to us here, to preach to us Christians here? And I think they're in two ways. These are, these are just sum, summarizing statements. But what I want to do is, is pose the statement, but then ask some questions that themselves are sermons you know, in, in themselves. And so, again, broad brush. Uh, they require elaboration. We don't quite have time for that. But I want them to, hopefully, for all of us, to just kind of poke and prod and expose a bit and encourage you guys, but also convict. So um, as we always say or imply through preaching, this is God's word, not mine, not a person's, not James himself, the historical figure, the half-brother of Jesus, not his. Ultimately, the Spirit's in love for us, trying to say this is what it means to be saved, what it means to have a joyful life, a full life. You know, these are invitations to consider these things. And so as I ask these questions, just think about them. Be honest with your heart, with us, if you want to talk to leadership about it, your friends, your uh, community groups, and, and beyond. So faith then, in addition to belief in Jesus Christ alone, in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, looks like, one, a love for God's people grounded on our amazement that God loves us at all. So Yes, questions like, is the gospel real to me at all? 
another, another good question that I think is a good litmus test to kind of gauge where we're at with Christ is, is to ask, am I excited to see Jesus? Does the thought of him being back at any moment just bring us elation? Are we just so excited? Or are we ashamed or fearful? Because usually what that tells us, if, if it's fearful, fearfulness or shame, we're probably thinking not so much about grace and his love, but more about us and what we can do to, to make him happy. And then we think, well, I've got a lot of work to do, so I don't want him to come back. So if we understand the gospel, we want to see him because every threat, every sin, every glimpse of hopelessness has been dealt with by Christ. There's nothing between you and him anymore except his love. So there's no fear because perfect love drives out that fear. We know we're loved, and so we'll want to see him. So if there's in any sense like a no, I'm not wanting to see him to that question, it doesn't mean like you're instantly not saved or anything. It just means be honest, go back to the gospel, and ask yourself, is it real to me, though? Do I really, is it a concept? Is it information? Or is it, is it personal? Move from the abstract to the concrete with it. The broad to the, to, the, to the specific and the personal. So ask yourself, do I understand the love that God showed for me when he died for my sins? And am I actively seeking to show that off to those in my local church? Or do I in any way harbor feelings of bitterness or extreme apathy towards the church? And so we all have to, we all have to ask those questions and God's people. And what James is saying is, Without the work of love for the church, your faith is dead. Without the work of loving other Christians, your, your and my faith is at, at best limp, at worst inauthentic and, and dead. Because you can't love Jesus and not love his bride. I mean, it's like someone said, Chris, I, I really like hanging out with you, but I can't stand your wife. We wouldn't get along too much, you know, too well. It's, it's the same with Jesus and his people. Like, you can't, you can't say, I can, I can have Jesus, but not his people. St. Augustine said in the 4th century, you can't have God as father without the church's mother. You just can't. It's, it's an inextricable thing. And, but we do it all the time. I do it. You need to repent of that, turn from that, to a better way of thinking about what church really is and how to reciprocate love back towards God by way of his people, how important that is and how constantly the Bible talk, calls us to this. It's not a, a lone command you know, on an island in the New Testament. It is everywhere. Love other Christians. 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 All the time. Spend your life. Spend your strength. May it hurt your muscles and your emotions to do it. And that leads me to the second thing here, which is, um, what does genuine faith look like? It's, it's a risk-taking, comfort-abdicating, non-people-pleasing lifestyle that flows from our unwavering trust in the God who raises the dead. This is the work, the works that James talks about. Paul the Apostle says, I don't have these on screen, but he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body into submission for the sake of the gospel. And in Acts 20, I consider my life of no value. And in James 1, he says, it encourages us to find joy amidst suffering. And there's many other places we could look, but what kind of person talks that way? 
a person who believes in a bodily resurrection does. Because a person who believes in a bodily resurrection knows they can spend all of their energy to their last dying breath, and it's worth it. Because God will put back these bodies together in the end. Resurrection is not your spirits living in heaven. Resurrection is your bodies, these bodies in this room, coming back to life, coming up out of the earth, pushing over our gravestones someday at the foot of Christ who commands it. That's real substantive resurrection, guys. And someone who knows that is more likely to spend their energy pushing forward the cause of the kingdom. Staying up a little bit later and losing sleep and getting more sick because of it. Getting up earlier to pray big prayers or to go help someone start their car when it's negative 80 or something, you know. Or just that costs something, right? Could be big or small. But spending strength and loving others advances the gospel. And, but it's just a, it's a hard question, right? I, I, ask this, I have to ask myself this. Do I consider my life of no value? Do you? Also in Galatians 1.10, he says, Am I trying to please man or God? You know, and the implied thing there is obviously God and not people because when we're gospel people, we will lose friends. We don't have them, we're not going to win popularity contests as Christians. We will, we will be hated and misunderstood. If you haven't lost a friendship for the sake of the gospel yet, you probably will at some point. I've lost friendships. Um, you know, it, it's... This is part of risk-taking, comfort abdicating. This is part of the work. What genuine faith looks like, the works that cooperate with faith here, looks like we're, we don't want people to not like us. We try to prevent that, but we accept because God is greater and the cause of the kingdom is greater. We accept and we're not trying to please people with our message. We're okay with offending. The gospel is offensive. We're okay with that stuff. We don't love it, but we're okay with it. We know it's true. We're not ashamed of the gospel even if it means people will hate us or laugh at us or think we're stupid or prehistoric intellectually or something like that. That's just part, part of the whole deal. Another thing, I'll, I'll, this is the last of the things, but there's so much more we could say. If God's giving you bunny trails in your mind, take them, as long as they're biblical, but whatever. All right, so, so view it, the last thing is viewing the church as, more as family than your physical. This is from Rahab. Viewing the church more as your family than your physical extended family. Uh, Rahab's a good example of this. Uh, she clearly says, um, the people of God now who are not like me, but I'm becoming like them, and God who is their father is more important to me than my family and my country. Uh, Jesus says things like in his ministry, if you don't hate your family, you can't be my disciple. And hate doesn't mean like I'm actively trying to do evil to them. It just means that in comparison uh, is there, you know, such a greater emphasis on the things of God that it almost looks like we're kind of neglecting in some ways, you know, or it's hard, it's hard to categorize that and put words to that, but that's what he says. So I'm just going to let that hang out there, you know, is if you don't hate your family, you can't be Christ's disciple. I mean, this is, this is a real thing. God is actually calling people out of a dark world to his kingdom of light. And does it mean what we neglect family, but it looks like priority. We say, we've seen people uh, even here, but just you know, heard about two other churches. It's, it's not uncommon to see people put family before church 
what eventually happens is, almost without fail, if that's not checked, is that people put family before God. Because God and church are like this. And so putting your kids' hockey schedules uh, on Sundays before church gathering uh, throughout the week, putting your, just your kids' comfort before what otherwise might be just a tough life, being a gospel person, putting that before Christ is not healthy and it needs to be repented of. You know, and that's part of why this is here. It's here in love. This is hard stuff to hear, I realize, but it's here in love. We need to hear this. Uh, God has it for us through James. And the reality is church is more important than family. And so Ray has a good example of that. There are other, others we could look at. But faith that is lumped with works, a, a genuine faith looks like the work of living that way. And so then the question is here uh, at the end is, do we have this type of faith or not? Right? And if not, and we'll always have a not at some point, presently, or we have or we will. And so it's not about perfect faith, remember, but genuine faith. But if not, this is one of those important things I'll say all morning, so hear this. The solution is Jesus. It's not by trying harder to get these James 2 type things on your own, but it's going back to the honey. You know, like trying to have this type of lifestyle that we've been talking about in James 2 is like, you know, without Christ, is like just going back to the idea of just knowing the honey is sweet but not tasting it. We have to taste the honey so we'll be able to talk about the honey and live as though it's amazing and want to cook with it more. Have it change our life. Honey changes your life, but whatever. You know what I'm saying. Uh, I like honey. But anyway, the, the, the way we get this life is thinking more about Christ by him being more sweet. Faith is a gift, so pray for a less limp faith. Believe in personal forgiveness versus the idea alone of forgiveness. Move from abstract to concrete. But remember, this is much more to do with taking the gospel, all of this stuff, taking the gospel seriously, living as though it's true, as though our bodies will one day be raised, and loving as we've first been loved by God, than it does with some vague notion of moral works and law-keeping actually justifying us before God. It's not saying that. Inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Contradiction. Rather, it's a healthy tension saying, we believe in Jesus, our lives are just changed, and he just does stuff through us. And it looks like this type of reorientation where we think about our lives and our church and our mission and our stuff and our bodies. But there's no less of a warning here. I, I don't want to make it more palatable you know, uh, beyond what it's actually trying to do. It's okay for this to sting a bit. Uh, this is probably not one of those verses you'll, you'll niche really neatly and put above your fireplace and say, aw, you know, to or something, right? It's like kind of hard to hear. But Bible says, watch your life. So watch your life. Believe the gospel. Know God loves you deeply. You know, spend more time thinking about the gospel and, and you know, reading the gospels or the passion narratives of the gospels than even other parts of the Bible or other, other books. I mean, it should, the, the climax of the story should feed into the rest of the parts. But believe the gospel. Uh, love the church. I'm speaking saying this to Christians. Uh, love the church and uh, spend your life because God spent his for you. You know, spend your life. Spend your strength for the sake of others in love. That's the work. James 2 is talking about that is perfectly complementary to 
the message of the gospel, and the primacy of grace over works as we think about what it means to be saved. So with that said, let's pray. God, thank you so much. Uh